copies of the scripture to 2 Samuel chapter 17. We are fast approaching the end of this book, and uh, I'm looking forward to, to moving on to something else. Uh, these final chapters, though, are important to the account of David and our understanding to the scriptures, and so uh, we want to finish up this uh, and conclude this book before moving on to a, another book in the scriptures. I bring you greetings from the brethren in Middlesbrough, Kentucky. Uh, Lori and I were there last week for worship, and it was good to see the brethren there and some new faces as well. Uh, uh, it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm encouraged because I think the church plant there has a good, solid foundation of families, and we're looking forward to a growth there. We will continue to pray for a new pastor for them. They are still looking. The Avons are, are moving to... Um, uh, west or to um, I want to say Johnson City, but it's not Johnson City. It's the the Tri Cities area of Tennessee. Uh, Don has been doing some preaching there for them uh, while they're still looking for a pastor, and they do have some others that are doing preaching as well. Uh, but uh, at the passing of Cecile's mother Millie, uh, they are now going to move closer to family, uh, their children and grandchildren in the Tri-City areas of Tennessee. All of the folks down there bring greetings, and I wanted to pass that on to you. Okay, let's turn our attention to 2 Samuel 17. I'll be reading the entire chapter. The entire chapter is the text, however, uh, for today's sermon. However, verse 14 is the the focus of of the sermon today. So let's let's, uh, hear the text, uh, and then uh, I'll begin to comment on, on that. Hear once again the very word of God. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose twelve thousand men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged, and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband." You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken, shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, There has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you, from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for a multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found. We shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him 
and of him all the men who with him, not one, will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is, found, is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so I have counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were, await- were waiting at en- Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell him, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both, uh, so both of them went quick, very quickly away and came to the house of a man, Bahurim, who had a well in his courtyard. And they went down into it, and the woman, and a, the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Hymaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water. And when he had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel's counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left that had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahaniam, Shobi, the son of Nahash from Rabbath of the Ammonites, and Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogelim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grains, beans and lentils, honey and curds, and sheep and cheese from the herd, for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we are numb to these accounts in the Old Testament in large measure because we are so unfamiliar with the history of your people. And so, Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would illumine this passage for our understanding, that we would come to grips with those things that are happening here and the persons that 
these things are happening with as part of the story that you've crafted throughout history to bring glory to your Son and redemption to mankind. We thank you, Father, that you've recorded this for our benefit. We pray now that you would mature our faith through the understanding of this passage. And we ask this by and through the name of Christ and the great work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And amen. Well, brethren, today we return to 2 Samuel in the life of David as he's been dethroned by his son Absalom in a coup d'etat. Children, a coup d'etat is a violent overthrow of an existing government or authority. And that's the uh, uh, Webster's dictionary definition from the internet. In the case of our passage today, Absalom, David's son, has overthrown his father's government and authority and assumed to himself the throne of Israel. This was without God's permission, but not without God's sovereign direction. Let me say that again. This happened without God's permission, but not by his sovereign direction. Brethren, this quickly brings us to our primary lesson from today's passage. God is sovereign in all his ways and at all times. We creatures misunderstand this lesson because we too often do not believe in God's justice, his equity, his mercy, and his purposes in bringing about the primary goal of the history of mankind. And that primary goal is the redemption of mankind by and through his son, Jesus Christ. Because of the importance of the lies of the two primary actors on God's stage in this account, David and Absalom, political intrigue press against the lesser actors with ethical decisions to be made, with lives to be protected or threatened, but all, that God's, but all of this is happening that God's decree might be fulfilled. And this brings me to the three lessons I wish to impress on us from the passage today. First, though the consequences of David's sin have left his kingdom in disarray, God's love for David remains steadfast. His hand of protection remains on David in seemingly unethical ways. And I'll point those out to us today. And then this brings us to the second point of today's lesson. In times of war... Faithfulness to God and his servants should be our primary goal. In times of war, faithfulness to God and his servants should be our primary goal. Just as an addendum to that, in times of war, ethics typically go out the, the window. Ethics evaporate in times of war. And, and our nation is no different than any other nation with regard to that. Yet God tells us that there's ethical ways to wage war. I don't have time to go through all that, but in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 19 or 20, I can't remember which exactly, God tells us how to wage war ethically. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon says there's a time for war, and God decrees that. But most men throw away all ethics when it comes to warfare. And we're going to look at ethics as it relates to warfare today. The last point that I want to bring to our attention is that even the best wisdom of men cannot thwart the mighty hand of God and his will. And we're going to look at the counsel of Ahithophel 
to Absalom, which God himself calls good counsel. We're going to look at that and try to discern better uh, what is happening with that good counsel. Well, I brought up Ahithophel's name. He's considered the greatest counselor in all of Israel at this time in history. He has sided with Absalom against David, and now he approaches Absalom with a good plan to eliminate David. In verses 1 through 4, Ahithophel requests 12,000 men from Israel, likely 1,000 from each tribe, so that all Israel would be represented. And this is an overwhelming number against David's loyal followers who have followed him as he's fled from Jerusalem. 12,000 men is more than enough to to, uh, follow after David. Ahithophel will then pursue David that night, the Scriptures say. He wants to go that very night when he brings this plan to Absalom to pursue David that night and take his life and return David's followers to the ranks of loyal subjects to Absalom. So only one man is supposed to die, and that's David. Everybody else is to come back to Israel as part of Absalom's kingdom. Absalom and all the elders of Israel are intrigued by this plan and take and like it, but Absalom wants a second opinion. He calls for Hushai in verse 5 and asks his opinion regarding Ahithophel's plan. Remember, Hushai is a loyal servant of David. In the previous chapters, we saw that Hushai wanted to go with David, and David says, no, stay in the court, court of the king, stay there, and, and be my spy in Absalom's court. And he does that. He calls, this is Hushai, this spy that's in Absalom's court, is called for, and in verse 5, he's asked for his opinion regarding Ahithophel's plan. Now remember that Hushai is a loyal servant of David. And so uh, what he says to Absalom is going to be a form of deceit. And I'll point out the deceit in just a moment. Verse 6, And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken, shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Well, what's behind a statement like that? What's, what's he presupposing? He's presupposing that all other times that Ahithophel speaks, it's good counsel. But you should be a little weary of today's counsel. This isn't good counsel. He's using deception to counter the counsel of Absalom for the benefit of David. He's calling into question this counsel. And during Hushai's deception, he flatters Ahithophel as an otherwise good counselor. Normally he's going to give you good counsel. Today he, he got up on the wrong side of the bed had its little indigestion, whatever the case may be, today's, today's counsel is not that good. But even the Lord, the author of this text in verse 14, calls the counsel of Ahithophel good. Hear the word of the Lord at the end of verse 14. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. So Hushai's lying to Absalom. 
This isn't good counsel. You shouldn't listen. When in fact, it was very good counsel. I'll come to that in a minute. Hushai is doing the best he can to give David time to flee and wants to send word to David regarding Absalom's plans. Remember, Ahithophel wanted to leave that night with 12,000 men who presumably were at hand if they're going to leave that night. It wasn't going to take a lot of time to pull these guys together. These are 12,000 soldiers ready to go. It's a civil war. My guess is that men are at arms already. This, isn't, this is something that would be easily accomplished. Let's take 12,000 men and go after them tonight. Let's get this done. By the way, we're only going to kill one. That's David. All the rest we're going to bring back to the, to the kingdom. Hushai's doing the best he can to give David time to flee and wants to send word to David of Absalom's plans. Hushai begins with flattery words saying this time or, or that Ahithophel's counsel is generally good, but this time it's not. And the assumption is that it's normally good and trustworthy. Hushai goes on to say that David is likely not with his loyal followers, but held up in some cave or some other obscure place. Furthermore, David and his valiant men are like bears having lost their cubs and will fight ferociously. He has no idea where David is. So he's, he's assuming these things. He's giving an opinion to, to Absalom. This is what David would do. He's held up someplace away from his people. He's going to be hard to find. And they're, they're all upset like uh, mother bears without their cubs. The cubs have been stolen away. These men are going to fight terribly. Uh, it's going to be ferocious. If they should over, uh, somehow prevail, it would be said of Absalom's forces that they were overcome by David's mighty men. David's mighty men, this is a title that was given to them many, many years beforehand when David was still running from Saul, but fighting the enemies of Israel. His, his small band of Warriors were called mighty men. So that this is the they're they're like the Marines uh, of David of David's time. These are guys who were known for warfare, and they are as mad as mother bears without their cubs. And if we go to battle with these guys, there's a there's a good probability we're going to take a lot of losses. And this would make David a sympathetic figure and threaten Absalom's reign. Hushai has vaguely asserted that David is likely not where, he, where they think he is, and despite overwhelming numbers, they should, should even the slightest thing go wrong for Absalom's men, while Ahithophel is in command, Absalom could lose his throne because of uh, the ranks uh, becoming discouraged. Now let's step back and consider what's happening. Ahithophel wants to swiftly pursue David and kill just him and return David's loyal subjects to Israel and to Absalom's kingdom. Hushai suggests that not only should David be killed, but all his loyal subjects and Absalom lead the all Israel against David and his mighty men, verses 11 through 14. Hushai is saying, no, Absalom, you need to lead this the people of Israel and take them all with you like the dew that falls from the sky in the morning cover the earth with the Israelites and you take David and his mighty men and put them to the sword Ahithophel is suggesting a surgical strike 
while Hushai suggests a huge escalation of the entire war. That's the difference between the counsel of these two men. And Ahithophel's plan can be executed quickly, while Hushai's plan will take time and resources to execute, giving David time to flee. Well, in verse 14, Absalom opts opts to adopt Hushai's plan, and it is there we read these words, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might be br- bring harm upon Absalom. The good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. And here is the first lesson that we must learn. Even in the, with the best wisdom of men, this good counsel from a wicked man, if it's not backed by the decree of God, it will fail when God has ordained that it shall not stand. Ahithophel gave good counsel to a wicked king, meaning, not, when I say good counsel, counsel that was wise given his circumstance. That's what he gave him. And the king didn't see it. Absalom didn't see it. So this brings us to our second point, the one about ethics in warfare. The several verses that follow this instruct us regarding the Davidic underground in this civil war, the Davidic underground. You know, during World War II, we had the French underground and, you know, uh, the German underground and the, the, uh, the Dutch underground, all of those. Well, here's there's an underground during this civil war. It's called the Davidic underground. I gave it that name, by the way. And there are several people who are loyal to David, and they conspire to protect David, the anointed one of God. Five people, Zadok and Abiathar, two priests, along with Jonathan and Ahimaaz, and an unnamed servant woman make up a communication chain to ferry Husai's messages to David. By stealth and deception, these five will get Hushai's warnings to David. By stealth and, and deception. And this brings us to the uncomfortable circumstance of war and how our faith can conflict with the demands of war. I am speaking of outright lying to the face of the enemies of God. Outright lying. That's what's happening here. We've already sung today the ninth commandment. We are prohibited from bearing false witness. This is a violation of God's law and a universal prohibition. The ninth commandment. Right? Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. Yet is there an exception to this rule? Is there ever an exception to this rule? I believe there is, and I believe it's a very narrow exception. And before I explain that exception, let us consider that the five people I've just named from the passage, along with Hushai, are conspiring to deceive Absalom. Deception is a form of bearing false witness. Let me say that again. Deception is a form of bearing false witness. So six people five of which David has expressly placed in their conspiratorial positions, are working together to deceive Absalom. 
So if we add David to that number, seven people are actively working to break the ninth commandment. Or are they? Or are they? Is it lawful in time of war to misdirect or bear false witness to the enemy? In time of war, is it lawful for us to use camouflage on our uniforms to make us look like trees and bushes so that the enemy has a more difficult time shooting us? Is that bearing false witness? Possibly. What happens when we turn or paint our tanks green or camouflage? Or our ships gray so they're harder to see on the ocean? Or the bottom sides of our, our planes white so they can't be seen in the clouds? Is that bearing false witness? During the American Civil War, and here's an example from where I was last week, from the Cumberland Gap in Middlesbrough. That, the Cumberland Gap, I think, changed hands more than five times during the Civil War. I think it may have been as many as seven times. I don't know the exact number. But on one of those occasions, General Nathan Bedford Forrest marched a small number of troops past an opening on a ridge, circling back around, back and forth many times. And it, this was all within the sight of the federal troops. The federal troops, if I'm not mistaken, numbered about 5,000 in the garrison at, at the Cumberland Gap. Nathan Bedford Forrest's troops numbered less than 1,000. Yet, he, he marched them past this gap in the hillside, enough so that the federal troops could see them and count them. And he did this for days. Marched these guys until they were exhausted. Round and round, round and round. The federal troops thought there were hundreds of thousands of Confederate troops on the other side of the mountain. The Federalists surrendered without shooting once at the Confederate troops, only to find that their larger force of 5,000 was captured by a force of less than a thousand. And not a shot was fired. Now at the end of the war, do you think Nathan Bedford Forrest should have asked for their forgiveness for violating the Ninth Commandment? I don't think so. Similarly, the conspirators in our passage have deceived Absalom and his forces to, to give time to David to get away the unnamed servant girl hid David's cohorts and lied as to their whereabouts. Clearly, she violated the ninth commandment. Or did she? Brethren, there are several examples in Scripture where believers have deceived authorities to protect the innocent or the anointed people of God. Such is the case in our passage today. It is a time of war. An unlawful tyrant has assumed authority in Israel and, in and is using his unlawful authority against God's anointed. Who is to be obeyed here? Who is to be honored? Is it God and his anointed who are to be obeyed and honored? Or is it Absalom, the tyrant, who's acted against the very will of God? Such was the case with the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1. Uh, we read that just a couple of weeks ago. And Rahab the harlot in Joshua 2 did a very similar act to what we're seeing here today in this passage. Both the midwives and Rahab deceived the authorities in their day to protect the Lord's anointed. 
Hear what James says in the New Testament about Rahab's actions in James 2.25. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? And we must note with this reference, what does it mean that she sent them out another way? Who did she send out another way? It was the men who were trying to take the lives of the spies. She lied to them and sent them out another way, protecting the lives of the spies of Israel. Brethren, Rahab feared God more than the men of Jericho who were seeking to slay the Lord's anointed. She protected them and God's, God commends her for her actions. That is to say, her deception. He commends her for doing that deceptive work. Brethren, this does not argue that Rahab's salvation was because of her deception. That's not what the passage is teaching us. So we have to say that right up front. But it is saying that her actions were evidence of her faith in the God of the Israelites. And because she acted on that faith to protect the Lord's anointed, God commended her. Well, this brings me to the the final point that I want to make to us. Many times as we have progressed through 2 Samuel, we've seen that even in the midst of the sinfulness of men, God's purposes were never thwarted. God's sovereignty is always at work and is always effectual. And here we see Ahithophel gives what God calls good counsel, but it's not heeded. Why? Why? The Scriptures tell us because God's sovereign hand would not permit it. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. The end of verse 14. And when Ahithophel learned his good counsel was not heeded, he put his house in order and hanged himself. We don't know what motivated him to do that. Why take such drastic action, one should ask. Could it be that he understood God was protecting David and no matter how wise his counsel was to Absalom, Ahithophel knew both he, his efforts, and that of Absalom were doomed. I believe Ahithophel probably had more wisdom in this circumstance than anyone. And that's why he took his own life. Now, we'll not know with certainty until we reach heaven and ask our Lord what motivated Ahithophel to commit suicide. But it would not surprise me that it was because he understood his plight better than Absalom. Brethren, in a few moments we'll be praying to our Heavenly Father for the nations of the world that they would bow their knees to Him. By the way, we do this every week when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy, will, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every week we pray for the kingdom of God to advance over the kingdom of Satan. That his enemies would be subdued. Well, we're going to pray that again. He has promised his son that he will subdue the, son, the son's enemies under his feet. Psalm 110, verse 1. And our prayers will be answered. Brethren, that is God's will. It's not a suggestion. It's what God is doing. 
What we don't perceive is how and when all this will come to fruition and take place in its fullness. And that uncertainty for us is intentional. Brethren, that uncertainty is intentional. The Bible teaches us that the just shall live by faith. God is not obligated to tell us every little detail. In fact, He only gives us a a glimpse of it, and yet that glimpse is sufficient for us. The Bible teaches us that the just shall live by faith. Faith in what? Faith in who? The answer is faith in God who has decreed the end from the beginning and things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. And we read that in Isaiah 46. Brethren, over and over again we've seen in, in 2 Samuel God's sovereign hand at work in, in these, these circumstances of intrigue and political intrigue and civil war and all the... Few of us are ever going to experience that the way David has experienced it or the way Hushai has experienced it or, or this woman at the, at the well, this unnamed woman who protected the anointed of God on behalf of David. Few of us will ever have to do that. Maybe none of us. But that doesn't mean God isn't just as effectual in our lives in our details. The trials that we are going through. The tests that come upon us. God is at work in us. Doing all His holy will. And He understands it far better than we do. And the just are to live by faith in the midst of that. Trust that God is doing these things for your good and His glory. So I have to ask, borrow a phrase from Francis Schaeffer, how shall we then live by faith? How is it that we are to live by faith in the midst of circumstances? Whether they be as, as uh, dramatic as that of David here or just our everyday ex- uh, circumstances. Brethren, we should live in the comfort that the God of the universe who created all things by the power of His decree has said to His people, all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purposes. That's our promise. That is for us to believe. That is for us to embrace by faith. All things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purposes. God is bringing about our redemption from sin and death to life eternal. His will shall not be thwarted. He has purposed it, and He will also do it. Let us pray together.